Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast. Episode 59, God Save Us All. Well, it's been over a month since the last episode of the podcast, and I apologize for that. That wasn't my intention. Uh, I had originally planned on interviewing Larry Dixon just a couple of weeks after the last episode was published, but uh, he he had to reschedule. Um, And then last week, I recorded the debate that will be played in the next three episodes, including this one. Uh, But I was sick when I moderated the debate, and I got even sicker and was out of commission for the next several days. Uh, Didn't come to my office, and so I didn't have the opportunity to edit uh, and post-produce these episodes that are containing the debate. Uh, And so that puts us out over a month since the last episode. Again, I apologize. That won't be the norm. Um, but you know, I can't, uh, I can't control whether or not I'm going to get sick all the time. So, uh, in any case, I hope that, um, the wait hasn't been too unbearable. As I mentioned on Facebook, uh, this month, the month of October, um, perhaps appropriately so, given the, uh, celebration that takes place at the end of the month amongst some people anyway. Uh, This month is Hell Month on the The Apologetics Podcast, and I say that because in addition to this universalism debate that you'll be listening to in this episode and the next two, um, I also just got done interviewing Larry Dixon this morning on the topic of hell and why he thinks that uh, the traditional view of hell is more appropriate or 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 is more biblical than the the, uh, view of annihilationism that I've been leaning toward lately. Uh, And then later in this month, um, a turret and fan will return to debate uh, somebody named Ronnie, a friend of mine, sort of, I, I consider him an internet friend, <laughs> uh, on the topic of annihilationism. And so uh, those three events, this this debate you're listening about to listen to now, the annihilationism debate for later this month, and the Larry Dixon interview, Larry Dixon interview um, make for something that I think is appropriately called Hell Month. Um, I hope you enjoy them. Uh, on November 1st, I have scheduled an interview with um, Scott Smith from Biola University. He'll be defending dualism in response to some of the physicalists that I've had on the show. After that, uh, I think I'm going to return to some more sort of um, bread and butter issues, I guess. You know, as, as you might have felt, I've sort of veered off into some esoteric areas as of late uh, or, or controversial areas. Um, but uh, I really want to return to some of the things that I'm more comfortable and confident in, things like uh, Calvinism. You know, I've got the Calvinism series that I need to continue. Uh, I also have some um, defending of the Trinity and of the deity of Christ that I'd like to, to discuss, um, and, and a host of other issues as well. So I hope that you'll enjoy the remaining few um, forays into the uh, the realm of my lack of confidence in certain areas. Uh, but... Um, but after that, let's return and get down to some more um, or less controversial issues. Speaking of the deity of Christ, I'll also be moderating the Trinity debate between Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries and Patrick Novice. Um, the plans for that will begin in sometime uh, approaching November after Dr. White's schedule has um, s- sort of slowed down a little bit. So I don't know when that will, when that's going to take place, but it should be a good one. I'm hoping that even though I have you know, become open to uh, annihilationism, which is something that Dr. White is adamantly opposed to. I hope that he'll um, still be willing to uh, to participate in, in the debate. I'm, I'm, it's one I've been really looking forward to, and I've sort of been <laughs> counting down the days till I could email James to um, to start setting things up. 
So anyway, that's sort of a, a look at the, the future of the podcast. Um, thank you for, uh, for your patience, both in terms of waiting for this episode, as well as for um, my foray into topics that perhaps you feel differently than I do about. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and play today's promo. Today's promo is for R.C. Sproul's Renewing Your Mind. Stay tuned. Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul is next. And our Quorum Deo thought for today. Let me say to you, dear friends, that you may not want Christ. You may not want to be bothered with religious things. But dear friend, you need Christ. You know you're not perfect. You know that you're not holy. And you know that God is holy. And the biggest problem you will ever face in your existence is how to reconcile that problem. And what Christianity is all about is that righteousness has been achieved by somebody else for me and for all who put their faith in Him. God provides what you need. As I've often said and will continue to say, R.C. Sproul is one of my favorites. Um, I highly recommend that you check out his uh, v various resources. He's made available tons of resources, small group study, you know, DVDs. Uh, he's authored a number of books. Um, he's just excellent, and, and his website is, is excellent as well. Check that out at www.ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R. And you can subscribe to his podcast, Renewing Your Mind, for free. It's, it's not all that difficult to do. So I would definitely recommend that you check that out. And with that, let's go ahead and move into part one of this universalism debate between Turton Fan and Jason Pratt. As the words I'm speaking are being recorded, it's Tuesday, October 11th, 2011, but whenever it is that you're listening, hello and thank you so much for tuning into this second ever The Apologetics podcast debate, this time dealing with what five specific passages in scripture teach concerning the scope of God's salvation. In a moment, I'm going to introduce my guests and explain the topic and format of today's debate, and then I'll open in prayer. But first, let me exhort you to listen carefully and seriously consider what each of my guests are going to say today. Like the Bereans whom Luke called noble-minded in Acts 17.11, let's examine the scriptures to see which of my guests' words are true. You and I might think we know what these passages teach about the fate of the wicked, but as Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries has often said, everyone has traditions, and those most blinded by them are those who do not believe they have any. Let's not allow ourselves to be blinded by our traditions. Now, with that exhortation out of the way, I'd like to introduce my guests who will be debating one another today. Turretin Fan is a reformed apologist and blogger. He has done a variety of debates on subjects ranging from the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to the bodily assumption of Mary. He holds to the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646 and its subordinate standards as a concise summary of the important doctrines taught in Scripture. The Scriptures, however, are his sole infallible rule of faith and life. Turretin Fan, thanks so much for being here today. 
Jason Pratt has been teaching Trinitarian theology and historical Christian apologetics for years as an invited guest author and administrator at christiancadre.blogspot.com and at evangelicaluniversalist.com. His 800-plus page philosophical apologetic for Trinitarian theism can be found for free at both sites, as can his 480-page gospel harmonization project. His epic fantasy novel, Cry of Justice, won the 2008 Retailer Poll Award for Novel of the Year from the Christian Small Publishers Association. Jason, thank you as well for being here today. With those introductions out of the way, let me explain today's debate. The proposition is this. Some people will not be saved from their sins according to the following passages in their contexts. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Matthew 25.41 and 46, Matthew 18.8, Romans 9.22, and Jude 1.6. Turretin Fan affirms the proposition and Jason Pratt denies it. Turretin Fan and Jason have agreed to this format. Turretin Fan will begin with a 30-minute opening statement affirming the proposition, followed by Jason's 30-minute opening. Turretin Fan will give his 15-minute rebuttal, followed by Jason's 15-minute rebuttal. At that point, three periods of cross-examination will commence, each beginning with 10 minutes of questions to Jason from Turret and Fan, and ending with 10 minutes of questions to Turret and Fan from Jason. Following this cross-examination, I will ask four questions each to Turret and Fan and Jason, alternating between them. The one to whom the question is directed will have two and a half minutes to answer, and his opponent will have 60 seconds to follow up. Then we'll wrap up with Jason presenting his 10-minute closing statement, followed by Turretin Fan's 10-minute closing. We may at a couple of places pause recording to take a break, but you won't need to do any fast-forwarding or anything. I'll edit those breaks out. So with all of that introduction out of the way, uh, I'll go ahead and open in prayer, and we'll begin. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for my guests today, um, for their desire to uh, join me in examining the scriptures to see what they say about um, who will be saved and, and who might not be. I just pray that you would uh, that you would help us all to um, have an open mind to what the scriptures have to say and not simply assume blindly that the traditions that we've been taught uh, or the conclusions we've come to are certainly the case. They, they, they may be wrong, and I pray you'd keep us open to that. Um, but let our sole infallible rule of faith be the scriptures and not, uh, you know, empty philosophy. Um, let us hold fast that which is true according to your word and reject everything else. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, if you're ready to go, Turretin Fan, I'll start the 30-minute timer, and uh, you can begin. Go ahead. Thank you very much. Today's resolution is, Some people will not be saved from their sins according to the following passages and their contexts. And the list of passages is 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46, Matthew 18.18, 18, Matthew, uh, Romans 9.22 and Jude 6. Uh, in support of this resolution, uh, I, I'll be affirming the resolution today, I offer three contentions. The first contention is, there is a judgment coming. Contention two, it will be an eternal judgment. And three, third, some will experience this judgment. In, so, uh, in order to examine my three contentions, I'm going to read through the texts uh, that we're considering and then expound on them, how they support these three contentions. So part one, Second Thessalonians, I'm going to read the context uh, that I've selected is uh, verses 3 through 10 surrounding verse 9. Beginning at verse 3, I'm not, I'm not going to pause for each verse break. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you 
all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be mired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now, this first passage and its context indicates to us that there is a judgment coming. We know that this from verse 8, where it says, that, well, in, in verse uh, 7 even, when it says, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a judgment day that's prophesied to come and which will come. Moreover, it will be an eternal judgment, for we're told in verse 9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, of course, that word, that word everlasting modifies destruction, but it also is in, in context referring to how these people will be punished. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And some will experience this, for indeed he, uh, it says, these who are the who have troubled the Thessalonian believers. So Christ is coming. He's going to come in judgment and these people who are going to be judged will be judged with an ever, will be punished with an everlasting destruction. So this first passage supports the three contentions and therefore supports the, the resolution, which is that some people will not be saved from their sins according to those uh, passages we're considering. The second part of my contention comes from Matthew 25, especially verses 41 and 46. The entire context that I'll provide is from starting at verse 31, and again, I won't pause for verse divisions. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, 
inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee an hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall ye answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not unto one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So again, this passage shows us that there is judgment coming. Verse 31 starts with, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and he will divide all nations into uh, sheep and the goats. The sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. The sheep uh, will receive reward, the goats will receive punishment. And it will be, point two, an eternal judgment, for we're told that they're going to depart into an everlasting fire, and they shall go away into everlasting punishment. So not only is the fire everlasting, but the punishment is eternal. And some will experience it, for there will be those on the right hand and those on the left. So there's no escape that, that only some will, ex- only, uh, some people will experience, uh, the blessings and rewards, and no one will, will be on the left hand side, but there will be goats on the left. Continuing on to the third passage, also from Matthew, going back actually to chapter 18, and I'll read verses 1 through 14 as the context for verse 8. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily, I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of the little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom they come, by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? 
And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So again, this passage likewise supports our three contentions, for it tells us that there is a judgment coming. That that judgment is not specified as far as the the timing here. It's mentioned simply that there will be an eternal judgment, an everlasting fire into which people will be cast, or which is also referred to as hellfire. And some will experience it. There will be, uh, in this particular passage, there's an indication that uh, of a threatened punishment, and it's not necessarily specified that some will experience it, but it's understood that some will experience it from the implication and from the delimitations that are placed. For example, it says in verse 6, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Note that that delimitation, ones which believe in me, indicates a distinction similar to the distinction we saw in the previous passage between uh, the sheep and goats, between the believers and the unbelievers, between the saved and the lost. Moreover, in verse 14, we we noted that it's indicated that it's not the will of the fa- of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, which seems to imply that there's uh, there's some whom... God wishes to save, to avoid perishing as described above, but that that there are others who do not fall within the ambit of this passage. So the the primary emphasis of this passage for the purposes of our contentions, the parts that it clearly shows, uh, are really contention two, that there will be an eternal judgment, rather than contentions one and three, that the judgment is coming and that some will experience it. Moving on to the fourth passage in our collection. Here I'll read to you Romans chapter 9. Uh, the, the focal point will be verse 22, but there's many important verses in this chapter. I won't provide verse breaks as I read through. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also, bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God 
according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the power, potter, uh, po excuse me, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Isaiah, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the day, in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and had been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith, but Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness? Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Now this passage is has many interesting facets, which we won't exhaust today in, in our short time we have together. But it has several uh, several ways in which it supports the three contentions, that there's a judgment coming, that it will be an eternal judgment, and that some will experience it. First of all, notice Paul's grief towards his brethren according to the flesh. He is grieved and vexed for them to the point where he would wish himself to be accursed from Christ for his brethren. He can't do this, but he would if he could. Why is that? Well, the reason why is that they aren't going to be saved, to put, a, to, to put the matter bluntly. But this raises an, an objection for, for his hypothetical objector to, to present. What about the promises of God? Have, have they failed? And his answer to that objection is, no, they haven't failed. But the reason they haven't failed 
is that not all of Israel is spiritually Israel. So in other words, physical Israel doesn't correspond to spiritual Israel. And in short, all of spiritual Israel will be saved, but not all of physical Israel is part of that spiritual Israel. So this gets us towards the, the overall contention that not all will be saved. Moreover, the passage ex- explicitly describes God as loving Jacob and hating Esau with respect to this purpose of election that God has with respect to Jacob and Esau, the two twins that were in Rebekah's womb when God said, the elder shall serve the younger. This, The point of this is a discriminating love, not a love that's exactly equal among all men, which ultimately doesn't address the three contentions I presented, but may address a potential objection based on the character of God, as though God had undifferentiated love for all mankind, so that God uh, equally loves Jacob and Esau, whereas Romans 9.13 says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, and refers this to the actual children uh, via verse 11. Moreover, God explains this discriminating favor not as uh, only rewarding some who deserve it, but rather that no one deserves it, and God shows mercy to some. But in particular, the repeated expressions are, and, and verse 18 provides an example, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And the, this distinction that's presented suggests quite strongly that this mercy is not on all. There are some whom he extends mercy to. These are the ones we would refer to as saved and those whom he hardens, which we would describe as perishing. Moreover, this passage indicates, describes the people who perish as vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. In other words, this shows us the purpose, the, the teleology of the vessels of wrath. One, they may have many other purposes. One of their purposes is to show uh, is to be uh, destroyed, but also another purpose is for God to endure them with much long suffering. Those who in this life do not believe on the Lord are not instantly cut off. God extends them great mercy, so great that uh, elsewhere in Scripture, this we are told to to, to count the long suffering of God as uh, salvation. But this this long suffering of God. Uh, does not extend ultimately to saving them from their sins, for they are fitted to destruction. Moreover, uh, by contrast, there are the vessels of mercy to whom he makes known the riches of his glory. This passage could hardly make sense if there are no vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, uh, except as sort of a hypothetical situation in which, you know, just as a hypothetical demonstration of sovereignty, but then it doesn't explain Paul's grief for his brethren. His grief for his brethren is because he knows that they are many vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. For he quotes Isaiah, saying, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. And that means not all, but only a small portion. A remnant is a, is a small portion. And uh, there's even a discussion that this Work, the, that he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. This finished and cut short work indicates sort of the, you could say, the finality 
of the judgment. It's not a revocable judgment that will that will some someday all of Israel physically, uh, even those who already have died, would would somehow be saved in the afterlife. Rather, the, this this work is going to be cut short, and that's what grieves Paul. Paul could hardly experience the same grief if he knew that his brethren, according to the flesh, will eventually all be saved, every one of them. Finally, the I, since time is short, I must leave off that and and move on to Jude. The book of Jude has a number of verses. I'm going to read verses 3 through 15. Of course, it's uh, Jude 1, since there's no second uh, chapter of Jude. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed not and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, hath he reserved in everlasting chains un under darkness unto the day, judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these e speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of wind, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now this passage likewise supports our three contentions. The first contention is that there is a judgment coming, and that's confirmed by verse 14, where Enoch, the prophecy of Enoch, is quoted as telling us that the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints. The second point, that it will be an eternal judgment, is set forth in verse 7, where we are told that the, uh, first in verse 6, of course, we're told that the angels who didn't keep their first estate, the fallen angels, are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. 
and that Sodom and Gomorrah provide an example for us of what of the eternal the vengeance of eternal fire that's coming on these unbelievers who are uh, either you could view them either as hypocrites or, or simply as wolves in sheep's clothing that Jude's warning warning us of. Moreover, they are described in verse thirteen as being like the planets reserved in the blackness of darkness forever. This is in a judgment that's eternal. And some will experience it. These particular men who have prophesied, the certain men crept in unawares, are those who will experience this. So, in short, we have the three contentions that there's a judgment coming, it will be an eternal judgment, and some will experience it. So, my dear listener, if you're, if you're listening to this and you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have not sought the forgiveness of your sins, do so now. There, there won't be time later. There, there, your life may be, may be long. It may, God may show you great long suffering in this life, but eventually you'll die and you will come to this judgment day. And if you don't have Christ, you will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, as Second Thessalonians 1.9 says. You will depart as cursed into everlasting fire, as Matthew 25 says. You'll be cast into everlasting fire and hellfire, as Matthew 18.8 and 9 says. And uh, you'll receive the vengeance of eternal fire and darkness forever as Jude says. So, repent. Don't, uh, don't wait another day. Turn, uh, turn to Christ now. And of course, I don't mean to suggest by this that, uh, my opponent in this debate is in such a condition that he doesn't trust in Christ or that he, he's in need of, uh, repentance simply because he and I disagree about certain, uh, details. I do think this is an important doctrine. And that's the reason I'm debating it. I I wouldn't debate a point that was merely a trivial matter or something of no concern. But while I I sincerely and deeply hope that everyone who listens will repent and believe, I I want to make clear that that appeal to everyone to repent and believe is not uh, not a criticism of my esteemed opponent in this debate and uh, that I would not necessarily suggest that this this Doctrine in itself is an essential doctrine. But what is important is trust in Christ and repentance from sins. And, and it is nevertheless an important doctrine. And I hope that as you consider the scriptures and weigh scripture, uh, scriptural exposition against scriptural exposition, you'll conclude uh, that indeed, as resolution states, some people will not be saved from their sins According to the following passages and their contexts, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46, Matthew 18.8, Romans 9.22, and Jude 6. Okay, thank you, Turton Fan. You still had a minute and eight seconds to go. Um, Jason, if you are ready to go, I'll go ahead and start the timer, and you have 30 minutes now. I'll start with Jude 1.6, as I prefer to start with my relatively weakest point and proceed from there. 
This is a good verse for Tifan to choose, because in dealing with this verse, I have to be purely on the defensive, unlike the other selections, for which I will have much more positive arguments. I can and will point out something important about a term there, but since Tifan's argument hinges entirely on that term and its usage, I will save that discussion, which is rather technical, for my rebuttal. Otherwise, in regard to this verse, I would argue from other scriptures that the rebel angels are not in a helpless situation and will eventually return in loyal service to God. Then I would bring in a bridging argument that we should interpret testimony like Jude 1.6 in light of the other wider testimony instead of vice versa. So, to give a quick example in passing, I would interpret this verse in light of an exegesis of Isaiah 24, verses 21 through 22, and its context, especially in regard to how St. Paul directly refers to the context of those verses in 1 Corinthians 15. The point in question is what it means contextually for the rebel angels and kings of the earth who are gathered into the dungeon and confined in prison, as in Jude 1.6 in its context, to be visited after many days. Does that mean punished, which was already happening, or reconciled and set free, which is what the term usually means elsewhere, subsequent to being imprisoned, as in this case? I would also interpret Jude 1.6 in light of what 1 Peter 3, verses 19, 20, and 22 in chapter 4, verse 6 mean, since in the narrative and thematic context of Jude 1.6 and its parallel in 2 Peter indicate Jude is talking about rebel angels who incarnated before the days of Noah and were destroyed in the flood. Much more relevantly to my forthcoming material in this debate, I would interpret Jude 1.6 in light of testimony about what happens to the human sinners mentioned around that verse, The whole point there is that false human teachers will share the prior fates of other human and angelic sinners. But if human sinners turn out to be reconciled, that would lend weight to rebel angels faring the same eventually by the same comparison. Fortunately, this is what I'll be positively arguing from the other four scriptures agreed to by Tifan. So, moving on. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Usually this verse is debated between proponents of eternal conscious torment and of annihilation, although both sides naturally consider it strong testimony against the salvation of these sinners from sin. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the good news of our Lord Jesus shall have justice dealt out to them by our Lord, in verse 8, when he is revealed from heaven in flaming fire, verse 7, and they shall value the justice of Ionian whole ruination from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his strength, verse 9. That's what those verses more literally read in Greek. I'll pass over the term Ionian there, assuming that Tifan is well-read enough to know that sometimes it describes things that go on forever never-endingly, and sometimes it describes things that had a beginning or have had an end. And so, since its meaning varies, it has to be determined by context, except insofar as the object it describes comes uniquely from God. There may be a few exceptions, but not in the New Testament, so far as I recall. That's all neutral to our purpose. We both agree in any case that context determines the meaning, and surely Tifan will agree that what is Ionian here does come uniquely from God. Which is especially important, and I expect Tifan will agree here too, for comprehensively exegeting this testimony in Trinitarian apologetics. The term Ionian itself is one indicator that Paul is identifying the person of Jesus as God Most High, even though Paul also distinguishes between the persons of Jesus and God in some real and significant fashion, such as in verse 1 of the same chapter. Moreover, Paul is personally putting Jesus in the action of ultimate judgment ascribed only to Jehovah in the Old Testament, not to any lesser Lord or God. And that isn't only a generalized observation. Paul is is referencing a specific portion of scripture here. The judgment of Jehovah in the day of Jehovah's forthcoming appearance, described in Isaiah 2.10. From the terror of Jehovah and from the splendor of his majesty. Also paralleled in verse 21 as, before the terror of Jehovah and the splendor of his majesty. Similarly, shortly prior to 2 Thessalonians 1.9 in verse 7, when Paul is speaking of the Lord Jesus being revealed from heaven with the angels of his power, he is referencing Zechariah 14.5b, where the prophet says in regard to the same situation, Thus Jehovah, my Elohim, will come and all the holy ones with him. 
This Isaiahic prophecy extends from chapter 2 through the end of chapter 5. It criticizes the unjust and oppressive Jewish rulers and population, although especially the rulers. Jehovah declares that they shall be, in effect, although the exact term isn't used, wholly ruined in the day of the Lord to come, at the coming of Jehovah among them. This is not the end of their story in these chapters, however. Although this can be obscured by the fact that Isaiah does not report things in sequence. He starts with the end result, for example, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where the mountains of the house of Jehovah will be established as the chief of mountains, and all the nations shall stream to it to be taught Jehovah's ways by Jehovah, so that they may walk in his path. And Jehovah will act as arbitrating judge among the nations, so that they will live in peace with one another ever afterward. It is in context of looking forward to this day that Isaiah calls Israel to stop their injustice and their idolatries and repent and come back to walking in the light of Jehovah. People, especially the egotistical leaders, who refuse to do so will be humbled and abased so that Jehovah alone will be exalted in that day. A repeated theme in chapter 2, verses 10, 19, and 21 is that doers of injustice will try to hide from Jehovah's appearance in caverns, but they will also throw away their idols, verses 18 and 20, possibly into the same caverns with the moles and the bats where they themselves attempt to hide. In the second half of chapter 3, Isaiah switches metaphors and begins to speak of rebel Israel as daughters of Zion, who are proud, seductive adulteresses, who shall be humbled in fashions analogically parallel to the more masculine humbling imagery elsewhere in the prophecy. The outcome of this, however, is more fully reported. Defeated rebels shall, approach, shall appeal to the righteous to save them and to take away their reproach. The imagery is that of, de- of desperate women after a battle begging to be made the indentured servant concubines of the conquerors. Notably, the righteous remnant... Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, the holy ones who are left in Zion and remain in Jerusalem, servants adorned by the beauty of the branch of Jehovah, are called the survivors in distinction from the rebels pleading for salvation. That's in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Nor shall the pleas of the defeated rebels go unanswered. Jehovah shall wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion, purging the bloodshed of Jerusalem from their midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. The result will be that the pillar of day smoke and night fire, as in the presence of Jehovah during the Exodus, will be a shelter from the storm and the rain and the heat. That's chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Chapter 5 goes back to the theme of coming punishment for rebel Israel and does not mention salvation for the rebels again. In this context, Isaiah 2, verse 9, which precedes verse 10, and that's the part referenced by St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians, should not be translated, but do not forgive them, as, for example, in the New American Standard Version. The primitive verb there, which means to lift and has a wide variety of usage in the Old Testament, should be interpreted and sense parallel to other portions of the same chapter instead. Do not lift up the humbled proud again to their former status of exalted rebellion. For example, chapter 2, verse 22, cease for man whose breath is in his nostrils, for in what should he be esteemed? In any case, the context of Isaiah 2 through 5 indicates that the fate of rebels wholly ruined from the presence of Jehovah is not hopelessly final. Even the proudest rebels are shown in a process of preliminary repentance, although not yet seeking salvation, by throwing away their idols. Other proud rebels seek repentance, including by petitioning the victorious righteous survivors, and receive reconciliation with Jehovah. And the whole prophecy begins with a portrait of broad repentance among all the nations in the day of Jehovah to come which by narrative and thematic logic must necessarily be subsequent to the punishment related afterward in these chapters, resulting in loyal fellowship with Jehovah where no such fellowship previously existed and peace among the nations under Jehovah's fair justice. So unless the Apostle Paul is completely changing, not just expanding, the contextual meaning of his Isaiah reference, he's talking about a situation that is expected to lead to the repentance and salvation from sin of those who, unlike the survivors, are wholly ruined by Jehovah in his coming judgment of avenging fire. 
This isn't something that should be swept aside. Not only is it directly relevant in a positive way to the intention and result of the judgment of 2 Thessalonians 1.9 in its immediate context, it also is in just the same proportion relevant to Trinitarian apologetics. St. Paul's specific allusion to Isaiah 2 demonstrates that in calling Jesus Lord, Paul very certainly means Jehovah, not some lesser Lord or God. To this, I can also add the observation that Paul himself uses the term olothron, or whole ruination, in a very certainly hopeful sense, at least once elsewhere, namely 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. St. Paul condemns the flesh of his opponent among the Corinthian church, the stepmom sleeping guy, to whole ruination, that's the same term, so that the stepmom sleeping guy's soul may be saved in the day of the Lord to come. That's the exact same day which Paul is talking about here in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Even without that definite evidence of term usage, though, I would still regard 2 Thessalonians 1.9 as talking very certainly about the same situation as Isaiah 2-5, through 5, which is not only hopeful for the sinners who are so destroyed compared to the righteous survivors, but reveals the end result to be their eventual salvation from sin, a total sweeping victory of salvation for and by God Most High. Even though the same chapters also hint it'll happen in waves, so to speak, with some sinners holding out or trying to dodge longer than others. I really do not know any other way in which it could be truly said that those wholly ruined in the second coming of our Lord could even possibly come to value his justice, up to and including the justice of his ruination of them. Obviously, most translators have no clue how that could ever happen either if universalism isn't true, which is why we rarely see that term translated accurately from the Greek, but that could be discussed in cross-examination. As the last two selections also involve some detailed discussion, I'll try to get through Romans 9.22 more quickly. There is a ton I could say about this verse in its context, but let's start with the immediately preceding context. Verse 9.22 is about vessels or instruments of destruction, and verse 23 is about instruments of mercy, both of which are, per verse 21, made out of the same mud or clay by which God has the authority of the potter to do, which in turn is preceded by Paul's remonstration in verse 20. Who are you, O man, to be answering back to God? Thus, that which is molded will not protest to the molder, why did you make me thus? I may observe in passing that this looks in Greek to be a statement of what will happen. The pottery will eventually not complain about being made this way. To me, this seems a bit hard to square with persons originally elected by God's own choice to never be saved from sin, much more so elected to be sinners at all, and so to continually fulminate in rebellion against God forever. But more importantly, Paul is referencing something from the Old Testament. It might be from Jeremiah 18.6, where the Lord sends the prophet to see a potter for an analogy. The pot was spoiled, so the potter destroyed it back to a lump, and made it again. Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my, ha in my hand, O house of Israel. This is very far from hopeless for the ruined pottery, even though Jehovah goes on to predict that Israel will refuse to repent and so will be destroyed. From the description in chapter 18, verses 16 and 17, that destruction may look hopelessly final, but that wasn't how the story ended for the destroyed pottery, nor is it how the story ends elsewhere in Jeremiah. Paul could also be referencing Isaiah 29:16. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered like with the clay, that what is made should say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? That's a reply to those who try to hide their plans and deeds from Jehovah in dark places to convince themselves that no one sees them. But Jehovah is also talking about a situation where, thanks to their insistence on sinning and on refusing to listen to correction and instruction, God has confirmed Israel in her ignorance and darkened her prophets and reduced them to being virtually illiterate when it comes to understanding the scriptures. This leads to Israel's overthrow and destruction. But most of this prophecy is about what happens afterward as a result of her destruction, after the ruthless have come to an end and the scorners are finished and all who are intent on evil are cut off. What happens is that Jehovah deals marvelously wonderful with those people, despite the acknowledged fact that their hearts are far from him and they only worship with their lips and not their hearts, revering him only by rote tradition learned from men. 
On that day, the people God has deafened due to their sins will hear, and the people God has blinded due to their sins will see. And Jacob, the righteous patriarch, standing here for righteous Israel, as Rachel does elsewhere, will no longer be ashamed of his children, for they will sanctify God's name and stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who err in spirit will know understanding, and those who murmur or criticize will learn instruction. This prophecy is only about Israel specifically, but it's eventually a sweeping total victory of salvation of Israel from sin for God. Or perhaps Paul was referring to Isaiah 64, 8, a portion of scripture we know Paul had on his mind while writing Romans 9 because he quotes from the beginning of Isaiah chapter 65 soon afterward. In 64, verse 8, the prophet is speaking for destroyed rebel Israel, praying in repentance that God will not be angry beyond measure, but will stop punishing them and restore them. God replies, in summary, that he will keep on punishing impenitent sinners, but will restore the penitent ones. He also replies, however, while describing the new heavens and the new earth to come in the second half of chapter 65, that eventually natural enemies shall live together in peace on his holy mountain, including typologies of ravening rebels like wolves, lions, and most notably the same bronze serpent from Genesis 3.14, finally eating the dust of his humility. So the whole prophecy there in context involves destroyed sinners repenting and being restored sooner and later, up to and including the great rebel himself. The language at Romans 9.20 is most similar, however, to Isaiah 45.9, where God is remonstrating against those of Israel who do not believe God will stop punishing Israel or restore her to faithfulness with him, and who perhaps are especially freaked by the recent prophecy that God will accomplish some of this by means of the pagan tyrant Kairos, a man who does not even know God, but whom God prophesies will come to know of him which Kairos historically did not before he died, by the way, although he did help restore some of the dispersed Jews to Jerusalem. The whole chapter and its preceding prophecy from Isaiah 44 is about God's absolute ultimate power to save sinners from sin and especially from idolatry to false gods. The end result is predicted. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth unto fair togetherness, or righteousness, or justice in English, and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance, they will save me only in Jehovah, our, Je our fair togetherness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. We know for certain this portion of scripture was very important to Paul because he refers to that final result several times, including later in Romans chapter 14, 11. The scope is total salvation from sin. None remain disloyal to God, who, per Isaiah 20, uh, 29, as mentioned above in similar connection to Romans 9, 20, does not accept false worship of lying lips and a disloyal heart. So then, it is true that God hardens whom he desires, as with blind Israel in Isaiah 29, but it is also true that God has mercy on whom he desires, such as blind Israel in Isaiah 29. God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endures with much patience the instruments of wrath that he has created to pour destruction, a patience, the term of which, macrothemia, is everywhere else in the New Testament related to God's intention to save sinners from their sins. Considerably more could be said in regard to the context of Roman 9, of course, including its relation to chapters 10 and especially 11, but for time's sake, I will move on. Matthew 8.18 begins a portion of scripture paralleled at Mark 9.43. It also repeats a saying from what is called the Sermon on the Mount earlier in Gosmat, but here it is part of a much larger scene taking place earlier in, uh, later in the ministry of Jesus, paralleled in both Gosmark and Gosluk. As we shall see, there are some things included in Gosmat not mentioned in Gosmark and vice versa, whereas Gosluk omits a lot and doesn't include anything in the scene the other two Gospels don't include. Gosjohn doesn't mention the scene at all. The scene in all three synoptics involves Jesus' final visit to Capernaum. On the road into Capernaum, the apostles had been disputing with one another about who among them was the greatest, and after arriving at the house, Jesus challenges them on what they had been disputing, but because they had done something prideful, they didn't want to answer. 
Jesus knows what they've been talking about, though. And so he warns his own apostles that unless they repent of their attitude and become like a little child whom he sets among them as an example, they, even they, will by no means be entering into the kingdom. This is the contextual setup for Matthew 18.8 and its marking parallels. Luke skips the subsequent scene, but ports what appears to be some of what happens there to a few other places in his account where similar things are being discussed at other times. Jesus is warning them that if they cause a little one like that boy to stumble because of their prideful and uncharitable behavior per the preceding context, they themselves would have been better off to have been thrown into the sea with a ton of stone around their necks. True, if that's a warning to the apostles of all people, it's a warning to anyone else, too. But... The point is lost if this section is interpreted to be a warning to some set of non-elected persons who have not been elected by God like those apostles to be the greatest in the kingdom. The rest of the scene in Gosmat and Gosmark, with a few pickups from Gosluke scattered elsewhere, harmonizes together in light of this warning. The Apostle John, at Mark 9, 38-40, paralleled in Luke 9, 49 and 50, reports that while they were on the road approaching Capernaum, they had found someone casting out demons in Christ's name, whom they tried to forbid because he wouldn't follow along with the Apostles, which must have burned them even more because of their recent embarrassing failure at exercising a demon from a child while Peter, James, and John were spending the night on Mount Harmon with Jesus during the Transfiguration. This might have even been what set off the quarrel about who among them was the greatest. Jesus rebukes them for doing so. The man was clearly serving him, even if he wasn't following them. They were only caring about their own pride. Having rebuked them at least three times already on their pride, Jesus forestalls any complaints of theirs that they just naturally can't help it, while emphasizing that the same warning he gave during the Sermon on the Mount applies to them, too. If your hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off. Better to enter the kingdom main than to be thrown with one's whole body into Gehenna where the fire is not quenched and the maggot dies not. Jesus quotes the final verses from Isaiah, which refer to the same situation described in Ezekiel 39, verses 9 and 10. The bodies and weaponry of the final failed assault of rebels against Jerusalem on or before the day of the Lord to come shall be so numerous that it takes seven years for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to clear them off. And in that time, no one has to cut wood for fires because spare weapons are handy for that. A situation that contextually must be happening before the resurrection of the good and the evil, by the way. Jesus isn't warning his apostles they'll be part of those rebel armies, of course, but he is using that as a figure for the fate coming to any impenitent sinner, among whom at the moment he's classifying them. After warning about this in both Gosmat and Gosmark, Jesus asked in Matthew's Gospel 18, verses 20 through 14, what do they think about this? And relates, again, the parable of the lost 100th sheep, a parable that on the face of it teaches total scope and total persistence of God's salvation of sinners. Mark doesn't report that, but he does report, which Matthew does not, how Jesus reconciles that parable to the warning about the unquenchable fire of Gehenna. For everyone will be salted with fire. By direct grammatic context, that's the same unquenchable fire as in Gehenna. And regardless of whether a subsequent clause there about every sacrifice being salted with salt is original or not, the point still stands, since, after all, the sacrifice was still going to be burned in the temple. All people will be salted with the unquenchable fire that burns in Gehenna. Is being salted a bad thing? No, Jesus says it's ideal, or the best of things. Why? Because when we have salt in ourselves, as he goes on to say, verse 50 of Mark 9, we will be at peace with one another, which the apostles, remember, were not. Jesus even exhorts us to have salt in ourselves, the salting of the unquenchable fire. It shouldn't be surprising to anyone who remembers that our God is himself a consuming fire, from verse 29 of Hebrews 12, a chapter very much about the purpose of God's love, even in his punishments, and that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit even fire, as John the Baptist prophesied per the report of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, the same uncontrollable fire burning up the chaff. Nor should it be surprising to anyone who is a supernaturalistic theist, and so who ought on principle to reject the existence of anything being an uncontrollable fire other than God Most High. Mark's account of the scene ends there, although I hope someone will ask me later about the proverb I skipped in chapter 9, verse 50. 
But Matthew's account continues onward. Jesus, having reproved his apostles in private, gives his apostles instructions on reproving their brothers in private, insisting that, as he has forgiven them, they must forgive their brothers. Luke, reporting the same saying later in chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, includes a portion Matthew neglects to mention, but which, we, as we will see, must have been said by Jesus here, too. And if your brother sins seven times a day and comes back to you seven times in repentance, you must forgive. After finishing this instruction and apparently sending them on their way, Jesus gets a visit from Peter afterward. That's Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Peter wants to know if he really has to forgive his brother that often, or possibly wants to know if after seven times he can stop forgiving the one who sinned against him. A very relevant topic if Jesus had just taught them that God persists in saving every sinner from sin until he gets it done. And if this was a difficult doctrine that Peter was looking for a way not to accept. Jesus replies with the parable, unique to Matthew's gospel, about the unforgiving servant who is forgiven of his vastly unpayable debt, apparently embezzled from his master, by the mercy of his master, but who then refuses to forgive one who has sinned against him, demanding that that person be thrown in prison with the torturers. It is the unforgiving servant who is thrown into this parabolic analogy for hell instead, although things are not quite hopeless for him, as he only has to pay one little thing to get out. Is that final cent of the money, is that the final cent of the money he owes? No, what he owes is the reason why he was thrown into prison after all. He owed forgiveness. He owed the mercy that he sought for himself but didn't want to give to others. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, Jesus warns, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. And that's how Matthew ends this scene. I don't think I need to comment much more on this incident. When the narrative contexts are added up and kept in mind, its shape is quite different from a non-universalistic interpretation. And I think its underlying lesson is repeated in a different, unexpected way in our final piece of scripture, the judgment of the sheep and the goats from Gossamat 25. This parable, for want of a better word, since it definitely follows two other parables, is the capstone to Jesus' set of three warning parables, including the ten foolish versions and the lazy servant who hid his talent. It's also pretty obvious that there is no direct indication that things are hopeful in the previous two parables for the foolish versions or the lazy servant. Everyone will suppose, I suppose, also acknowledge that the other two parables should be interpreted in light of the sheep and the goats. Although, if Tifan wishes to try to argue the other way, he can, he's welcome to do so. So I've saved this scripture for last on the same principle. When people debate what this parable is trying to say about heaven and hell, they typically focus on the use of Eonian to describe the life and the punishment. I think we can all agree that Eonian at least means the life and the punishment both come uniquely from God. And for various reasons, I would recommend this as far as the term should be interpreted here. But since it's very normal to hash out a discussion on Eonian, and since the non-universalist case from this passage, not reading into it from material concepts elsewhere, proper though that may also be, entirely depends on this term usage shutting down for one or, an or, for one or another reason, any hope for the goats, I'll save that discussion for the rebuttal. A tactic increasingly more common is to debate what colossus means. Everyone agrees it's a term for punishment, and I think everyone agrees it's borrowed from an agricultural term for cleaning sick branches from a vine. What people disagree on is whether the sick branches are thrown hopelessly into a fire, as Jesus' as imagery at the beginning of his final discourse in Goss John might mean, although that might be a rather different meaning if the purpose of the unquenchable fire even in Gehenna is to salt our hearts so that we will be at peace with one another or whether the sick branches can be grafted into the vine of Israel once they are healed, even if they have been cut off previously, as St. Paul definitely uses the metaphor in Romans 11. Context is what counts, whether interpreting Ionian or in interpreting Colossus. So let's go to the contextual details of the story. Christ gathers all the nations together when he comes with his angels to sit on his glorious throne and separates them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Three things worth noting already. First, Christ acts as the shepherd of the goats as well as of the sheep. The goats belong to him, just like the sheep do. Second, the word here translated sheep, probaton, doesn't exclusively mean sheep. It's a general term for any small herd animals, including goats. It's also almost always the term used in the New Testament when the English translates as sheep. 
This means in most cases we could just as easily be talking about the good goat herd herding his goats and going out after the 100th goat to save it. Sheep are admittedly more numerous than goats, usually, whether altogether or in distinct flocks, but that doesn't mean the term exclusively means sheep. On the other hand, the word translated goat here, eraphos, does mean goat, but it very specifically means baby goat. The same term is used in the parable of the prodigal son, when the older son complains that his father never gave him and his friends a baby goat to cook for a party. If Matthew, or whoever translated Matthew's gospel into Greek, or even Jesus originally in Aramaic or Greek, went to the trouble of calling them baby goats, why haven't translators usually followed suit? As we shall see, those baby goats do make an important difference as baby goats. Meanwhile, if the goats are specifically baby goats, then the protons, by contrast, are probably mature sheep, or maybe the mature herd in general. Is there any evidence that their maturity is being contrasted to the immaturity of the baby goats? Anyone familiar with the story ought to be able to guess the answer, but let us proceed. Christ sends the sheep, let us call them for now, into Ionian life with the praise that they have served him very well. This catches the sheep entirely by surprise. When did they ever serve Christ? Any Christian, and especially one familiar with this judgment parable, ought to know the answer already and certainly ought to be expecting to have been serving Christ, which indicates that these people are not formally Christian, but Christ counts them as his servants anyway. Why? Because when these people, the righteous or just ones, were feeding the hungry and giving sick drink to the thirsty and inviting strangers in and clothing the naked, visiting the sick and those imprisoned, to the extent they did this to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me, Christ says. Who are these brothers of Christ he's pointing to? grammar in Greek is emphatic that Christ is indicating someone there on the scene. Some people have supposed it was the righteous angels in disguise, or other sheep, since the only other characters in the scene are the baby goats, the least of Christ's flock. But that would be ridiculous, right? The baby goats, on the other hand, literally, are sent by Christ into Ionian Colossus, whatever we decide from the context that involves. The surprise is the baby goats. They thought they had been serving Christ. When did they ever refuse to give charity to Christ? When they refused to feed, clothe, visit in prison, etc., even the least of these, to that extent, they did not do it to Christ. The story warns ostensible followers of Christ that they may be revealed to be the least of Christ's flock. And what constitutes this revelation? The baby goats did not act to bring the least of Christ's flock, whether really so or in the perception of the baby goats, out of their misery, the way Christ acts. The sheep, the mature flock, were following Christ. The baby goats were not. The story is a reversal of expectation, but it's also set up to test the audience. And the test is this. How are we to regard the baby goats, the least of Christ's flock? Are we to deny the baby goats shepherded by Christ are of Christ's flock after all? If they are hungry, thirsty, strangers outside, sick and imprisoned, are we to ignore them? Is that what the mature flock does? Should we expect the good sheep and the good shepherd to start behaving like the baby goats now? Or should we expect them to continue behaving like good sheep and the good shepherd? Because... We know from a bunch of other judgment details what's going to happen to those baby goats, whether analogically or literally. They're going to be hungry now, and thirsty, and outside the gates of the New Jerusalem, and their clothes will be dirty, and they'll be imprisoned in the lake of fire, along with the rebel angels, as this parable also says, and be sick, at least in mind, fondling their sins impenitently. That's the scene set in the final chapter of the Revelation to John. So, what are the Son and the Spirit and the Bride, the mature flock, doing there? Are they treating those baby goats the way the sheep in this judgment would? Are they going out to exhort those strangers outside the New Jerusalem to slake their thirst in the freely given water of life, flowing out of the never-closed gates of the city, and to wash their robes so that they may obtain permission to come inside the city and eat the fruit of the log, in other words, the cross of life, the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations? Or is the mature flock now acting like baby goats to the baby goats of Christ, who have themselves been condemned to Ionian Colossus, whatever that means, for acting like baby goats to the baby goats of Christ? Even if I didn't have the end of Rev. John, though, I would still know what to expect from the narrative and thematic logic of this judgment parable. 
I would expect the sheep and the shepherd to keep on acting toward the baby goats like good sheep and the good shepherd on being pain, on pain of being found myself to be only a baby goat. And that's also the challenge on how we should interpret the other verses we're debating tonight, including Jude 1.6. Should we interpret them like mature sheep would, or should we interpret them like baby goats would? Thank you. Okay, thank you, Jason. You had two minutes left. You guys both used your time very well. Um, do either of you need a break before we move on to the rebuttals? I do need a drink, I think. <laughs> how about you, Turret and Fan? Could you use two or three minutes? I'm fine. Okay. Um, well, then, how long will it take you to get a drink, Jason? Oh, I, I can drink while he's doing his rebuttal. Oh, I okay. <laughs> All right, if you're ready to go, Turret and Fan, you now I have... I'm going to mic here. Okay. You now have 15 minutes starting now. Turin fan? All right, thanks. Thanks very much for that. The uh, the rebuttal period, of course, is a chance for the, the the audience really to evaluate the arguments that have been presented exegetically from Scripture to see what is the uh, what's the crux of the matter, what's the distinguishing point. Uh, what what do the uh, what do the arguments actually hinge on? So the the arguments in this case hinge on uh, a, a number of different issues. I'll try to go through the texts and identify those hinge hinge points and provide some response uh, as needed. Remember, my three contentions are that there is a judgment coming, that it will be an eternal judgment and that some will experience this eternal judgment. In other words, some people will not be saved from their sins according to the following passages and their contexts. And referring to the first passage, 2 Thessalonians uh, 1.9 and its context. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9 and in its context, we've seen that there's a coming judgment and that some will experience this judgment. And I don't think uh, that Jason disagreed with that point he seemed to question only whether it's an eternal judgment. Of course, the text does say that it's an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. And it seems as though uh, Jason has taken the position that although the text reads everlasting or eternal, uh, we ought not to take it to mean that for other uh, for other reasons. In other words, this word that's translated everlasting here is essentially mistranslated. That doesn't mean everlasting. In context, it should mean something else. The, the argument by which he arrived to this point is a little bit uh, hard to, it's a little hard to follow how this is a contextual argument. It seemed as though Jason referred us back to what Jason believes is an illusion to Isaiah, and then uh, examined the the text of Isaiah, found that some people survived a judgment in Isaiah and were renewed to repentance after this judgment. And therefore, seemingly, uh, Jason applied this uh, pattern of post-judgment repentance to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. This imposition on the text may seem to make some 
some sense if Paul is really alluding back to Isaiah, and perhaps we can explore that at greater length during the cross-examination. But if Paul is not, of course, if Paul's not uh, alluding back to that passage, that passage from Isaiah doesn't seem to have much relation at all to this text. And within the context of the epistle itself, there doesn't seem to be any particular reason to adopt this view of post-destruction repentance. Indeed, there's nothing within the context of 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that indicates that these who will be punished with destruction, which is described with this word that's translated everlasting, uh, are going to be punished anything less than everlasting. There's no indication that these people will eventually come to repentance or they have any hope of repentance. Moving on to the second passage from Matthew 25, again, there's the, uh, the argument here, which does, does not rely specifically on going back to uh, going back to Isaiah, but instead here we're reminded that, as I understood, that this description of the fire and of the punishment is not a description that necessarily means everlasting as, as translated, but the or, or eternal as, as also translated, the same word is translated both ways. Uh, not that it means that, but that this simply is an indication that it's from God. Uh, well, I certainly don't dispute that the both the, the punishment and the life are from God. There's a durative connotation to the word. The, the word for life eternal and the word for everlasting punishment is the same, the same adjective, and it, it's an adjective that's expressing the duration, and that duration is eternal. And again, I, I don't think, uh, well, on this point, J- Jason disputed the fact that there's a judge, judgment coming or that some will experience it, but just simply the question of whether or not this judgment will be eternal in duration. The passage from Matthew 18, the third passage, uh, seems to have the sa- a similar uh, a similar explanation. In other words, it was actually mentioned that the salting, in an, uh, really in a parallel account, not, not directly in Matthew 18, but of course uh, fair game in terms of uh, in terms of trying to describe the context. But that in this parallel passage, salt is described as good. There's a salting of the fire that everyone will experience. Uh, that may be uh, an interesting point in that this is a good thing to be salted with this fire. Uh, but in, in terms of what actually is going on in Matthew 18, that seems like an un, uh, untenable interpretation since Matthew 18 is actually uh, con, contri- saying that it's better to undergo some serious injury rather than experiencing this fire that's being described. So it seems as though it's untenable that this fire is actually a good thing, and instead it's a it's a very a very bad thing, and it's the threatened punishment for those who uh, who cause the little ones the little ones who believe, as contrasted with the others, uh, to perish. Moving on to the fourth point with respect to Romans nine, the the illusion perhaps is better. Uh, it was mentioned as a possible allusion to Jeremiah, but a, perhaps a better allusion here is, is to Job. 
in terms of which potter is being referenced. Regardless of which potter is being referenced, the the point that Paul is making in Romans 9 has to do with explaining the destruction of physical Israel and how that doesn't violate God's promise, uh, God's promises that he's given. That explanation is that physical Israel isn't, does not have a one-to-one correspondence with spiritual Israel. But that explanation makes little sense if Paul is actually teaching that all men universally are saved. If instead Paul's teaching that actually only a remnant of physical Israel is saved, the the whole the passage of Romans nine uh, makes sense. It also explains better Paul's sorrow for those uh, of his, according to the flesh, his brethren and kinsmen, and it explains why while while he might wish himself accursed from Christ, he can't be, uh, and yet by implication they are. They are from they are apart from Christ, and they they are going to undergo this destruction that's coming. The fifth and final passage, which is where uh, Jason started, is is Jude. And again, this passage thrice describes the punishment that these particular wicked men will undergo as being everlasting, everlasting chains, eternal fire, and darkness forever. And yet, uh, nevertheless, we are... We're uh, apparently going to hear in rebuttal some explanation of why we ought not to consider that these have been properly translated, that it's, it, although it's list, described as eternal, it, we ought not to think of it in those terms. Unfortunately, it's a little hard to present a rebuttal of those arguments, having not yet fully heard them, and it would be, uh, really, it would be improperly, improper for me to improper for me to to expound too deeply on what might be the argument. Suffice to say that this term that's used is the same term, same Greek word it's used to describe in, in, for example, of course, one of the passages we're, we're considering, which is Matthew 25, verse 46. But elsewhere throughout the New Testament, it's used dozens of times uh, and always can has this sense of eternality. Sometimes it's a one-ended eternality. In other words, uh, something that has no beginning, something that has no end. But in any event, this uh, or something has neither beginning or end, but it always has one of those three meanings. And uh, the contexts that we, the actual context of the passages that we've read don't provide us with an indication that we should think otherwise. In other words, these passages don't indicate for that there's a repentance of people who are undergoing everlasting punishment and restoration of these same people. Not not in Second Thessalonians one, you know, but either before or after verse nine. Not in Matthew twenty-five. Not in Matthew eighteen or Romans nine or Jude one. In fact, it's very hard to understand how in Romans 9, to take an, an easy example, how the teleology of vessels fitted to destruction would make much sense if that destruction is not really the end, if that's not their uh, final purpose, especially given the contrast between 
destruction and mercy. We could speculate uh, about a hypothetical world in which neither uh, blessing nor punishment were eternal, but, but there's doesn't, there doesn't appear to have any uh, strong lexical reason uh, based on the usage of the word throughout the New Testament, both in the Gospels and the Epistles. And uh, even in... Uh, even in, in the Acts, where it says that when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's Acts 13.48. So even there, there's this use of this Ionian in Greek, this word that we translate everlasting or eternal. And we have a consistent meaning throughout. It's There's no... There doesn't appear yet in this debate to be any reason to reject that conventional translation of the term, but we may have to wait until rebuttal to hear the the argument uh, to the contrary. And so I look forward to hearing that rebuttal, and uh, I'll conclude my own rebuttal at this point. Okay, thank you, Turret and Fan. Uh, you had two and a half minutes left, and now, Jason, if you're ready to begin, you have 15 minutes beginning now. I would say my introductory arguments about the verses under consideration have already rebutted in passing most of T-Fan's introductory arguments about those verses. But since I have some rebuttal time here, I'll pick up some important spares. Starting with Jude 1.6, T-Fan's whole case there rests on what the Greek term idios can or does or must mean in that verse. There are actually two different words that those letters might spell in Greek, depending on whether the first two vowels are taken together as a diphthong, idios, or as two separate uh, syllables, idios. In unical Greek, or even minuscule Greek, there's no way to tell the difference by sight. Later copyists would have to differentiate by putting a double dot like in a German umlaut over the iota or not to indicate which term they thought the word meant. If the term is idios, then it means something roughly similar to high brightness, with the second part of that word related to the underlying primitive word behind Zeus, Theos, Deus, etc., and is a metaphor relating uniquely to God most high. By a second metaphor, that could then mean eternal, as that's one of God's unique qualities, especially as the first syllable spatially pictures ongoing vertical height. In this sense, the word would be a much stronger version of one way to interpret the adjective Ionian, which is much more common in the Greek Old and New Testaments and is most often used in the New Testament for Ionian life. That would be life from God, or from the heart of God, or uniquely from God, or a little more colloquially, it would be God's own life. Idios would be an even more emphatic way of saying that same thing, thus a very strong way of saying that the bonds holding the rebel angels are divinely from God and uniquely related to God. That might mean they are as eternal as God in a derivative way, of course, or it might be more of an authoritative emphasis. It wouldn't mean the bonds are eternal apart from God. They can only last as long as God keeps them on. But the meaning would emphasize that the bonds have God's strength from God. The other option, uh, idios, has itself two potential meanings. One would be a variant way of to say that the bonds cannot be seen. Another meaning would be a negation of the common use of idios in the New Testament to mean pertaining to oneself, private or separate from oneself, or by a colloquial extension, to possess for oneself. The whole point of these angels, of course, is that they went their own way in rebellion against God, and now God has captured them with bonds enforcing the idea that these angels do not belong to themselves but belong to God. However, while that meaning isn't impossible, I acknowledge it does seem to be straining the usage of the term in connection with bonds. God has kept them in not private bonds, but the bonds are an unseen prison, at least, which would seem to be privation. 
God has kept them in not belonging to themselves bonds? Yeah, that's true, but it seems a very weird way to say it. One or both of the other two examples would fit more smoothly. Which leads to the third overall option, that the word is a pun that means multiple things. We can see this at work in the first chapter of Romans, where St. Paul is talking about the idios power of God. The point there is that God is rightfully angry at even pagans, because even pagans know something about the invisible God from their manifest, from the manifest display of the visible works, aside from his idios power and divinity. Here the word clearly means idios, a variation of invisible. But it probably also means a variation of theotes, or divine nature. In other words, philosophical pagans are without excuse because they are in some position to know about God's divinity and divine power. But even non-philosophical pagans can see something of the invisible power of the invisible God by the visible results, which cannot be accounted for otherwise. We may also, by the way, see a contextual possibility here that the term means public results, not private results, or idios, of the unseen power of God. Even though, on analysis, I doubt that's the meaning intended at Jude 6. It's possible Jude is making a similar rabbinic double meaning here. After all, no one denies that the bonds are uniquely from God and so are going to hold until when, if ever, God frees them. Although, that leaves open the question of whether God will ever free them. The answer isn't a built-in no by the meaning of the term. But if I had to guess from exegetics whether only one meaning was intended, I would probably go with imperceptible, mainly because the parallel statement in 2 Peter 2.4 definitely uses the term Hades, which means unseen and is closely related to the unusual term Aidios, and pits of darkness, or Zophos. Also because when Jude himself compares the false teachers oppressing the church to rebel angels again a few verses later in verse 13, he specifically describes them as wandering stars for whom the zophos of the skotos, or the gloom of the darkness, has been reserved into or for an eon. The contextual weight for Jude 6 meaning imperceptible by idios is therefore very strong. Still, it's certainly possible that Jude rephrased 2 Peter 2.4 in such a way that it also held the meaning of being specially from God. I can't rule that out, and I'm not even interested in ruling that out, and so I agree with the concept anyway. The only thing I'm pointing out here is that the term does not intrinsically mean the bonds will certainly last forever. At most, it means the bonds will last as long as God chooses for them to last, and the context of Jude 1.6, if anyone cares to look, do not in themselves indicate that God will choose for them to keep on lasting forever. Indeed, even on a non-universalistic systematic theology, we're told toward the end of Rev. John in the second half of chapter 20 that God will set these demons free at the end of the Messiah's millennial rule, whatever that may mean in itself, for their final rebellion and defeat right before the same judgment which Jude 1.6 is talking about. So, in fact, those bonds can and will end, even if they are replaced with bonds that do not end. But that's a whole other question. By the way, that phrase at the end of verse 13, Iona, has been replaced in very late copies by Iona Iona, into or for the age, probably because it sounded stronger than the rather weak way of phrasing it originally. This phraseology is directly paralleled on the same topic in 2 Peter 2.17, except without even a weak Iona. The term should therefore not be translated more than for an age. That would at first glance mean the current age, before the day of the Lord to come, the age they're already being bound in, Although, neither would that necessarily exclude them also continuing to be bound in the age to come, of course. Based on parallel context, the into foreign age probably means they're being kept for the day of the judgment of the Lord, so it wouldn't only mean this age. Neither, however, does it necessarily mean they will be kept in bonds all throughout the subsequent age. The term is much weaker than any fair reading of that from the term. Since I've mentioned the term Ionian while talking about Aidios, or Aidios as the case may be, let's talk about that for a while now. It's also found in Jude 1.6, but in this case I'm going to be talking mostly about its relation to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. 
Proponents for a hopeless punishment here acknowledge and indeed insist that context should determine what Ionian means, whether as a set of options, if there are any options, or as a single meaning, and that even if there are options, context would still determine which options are in play. In regard to this, they would appeal to the parallelism of the Ionian life and the Ionian punishment of the sheep and the goats, as I think Tifan did eventually, and further appeal to the principle that a relevant comparison is thereby intended. If Ionian means never-ending for the life, then how could Ionian not mean, by virtue of the comparison, never-ending for the punishment, or vice versa? If Ionian does not mean never-ending for the punishment, how could it hope to mean never-ending for the life? So from this direction, our hope for the life must be in direct proportion to the hopelessness of the punishment. If the hopelessness is threatened, the hope is threatened. That's a popular and a reasonable complaint. But aside from the answer I've already given in the context of the overall structure of the judgment, I can make some further observations. First, non-universalists of all people are absolutely committed to exegeting identical terms in important close topical context, even in direct comparison, as meaning substantially different things. The most famous or infamous example off the top of my head is Roman 5, where the direct immediate parallel comparisons of all are required not, in fact, to both mean all, and similar comparisons of many are required not, in fact, to both mean whatever many means. It is entirely clear enough that if many, by contextual comparison to all, means all, each time many is used there, and if all means all, each time all is used there, Paul would be teaching universal salvation from sin by Christ. Typically, non-universalists appeal to other indirectly related testimony to try to argue against this rather than direct, direct contacts in Romans 5, which I will allow could be proper to do, perhaps. My point here is not to argue Romans 5. That's a whole other debate. Only to give an example where non-universalists as such must be committed, whatever their reasons may be, to reading identical terms very differently in closely connected contexts on the topic of salvation. Similarly, in order to avoid a universal salvation conclusion from exegeting Colossians 1, non-universalists must either deny that the same words used in affirming the utter divine supremacy of Christ over creation do not have the same meaning when talking immediately afterward about the scope of God's action to reconcile all things to himself through the blood of the cross, or they must deny that the same word for reconcile when used immediately afterward to speak of the salvation of enemies of God from sin, namely Paul's readers in the Colossian congregation, does not mean the salvation of enemies from God from sin when speaking of the scope of reconciliation of all things to God, by God, through the blood of the cross. My point here, again, is not to argue Colossians 1, that's a whole other debate, but to give another example where non-universalists, as such, must be committed, whatever their reasons may be, to reading identical terms very differently in a closely connected context on the topic of salvation. It may be replied that all and many are common general terms, although I don't know how far that reply would stretch to include the terms in Colossians 1, but those terms aren't the important word Eonian. Maybe it's theoretically possible for Eonian to mean two superficially similar, but also importantly different things in close context, but are there any biblical examples of such usage? In fact, there are a couple of times. In the final blessing address of his epistle to the Romans, Paul writes in verse 25 of that 16th chapter that a secret hushed in time Zeonian has now been revealed, which it is our responsibility as Christians to proclaim. Now, those times did not continue, but are in the process of ending, and those times, in fact, began. They had a beginning, and they will have an end. And so, in a sense, they've already ended, and will certainly end one way or another when Christ Jesus is finally heralded to all creation. Nor did those times stretch without beginning into the past. So those times had a beginning and are having an end and will someday be completely ended and yet are described as Eonian. But in the very same sentence, only a few words later, Paul talks about this secret of Eonian times having been manifested both now and through prophetic scriptures, thanks to the injunction of the Eonian God. The same word absolutely cannot mean only never-ending 
or only ending in both cases. It has to be talking about something that never ends in one case, that's God, and something that sooner and later definitely ends, the times of the secret. But it may be replied again that Paul does not here directly compare the Ionian God with the times Ionian. Uh, Maybe not. It looks to me sort of like he is. But supposing he doesn't, the prophet Habakkuk makes such a comparison. Habakkuk 3.6. He, speaking of Jehovah in the day of the Lord to come, stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder or startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The Ionian hills collapsed. His ways are Ionian. Here we have an example of a primitive word, ad, originally similar in meaning to another word used here in this verse, olam. Both refer to the horizon, but ad means the line of the horizon or any similar meaning or any similar line beyond which something still exists. And olam refers to that which is beyond the horizon. Either way, both words by metaphor are often employed to talk about the absolute everlasting greatness of God. But both words are also occasionally used for things which aren't actually everlasting. This verse might have been expressly designed to contrast those two concepts. For not only are the odd mountains shattered, but the Olam hills collapse, using a verb which has a double meaning of bowing down, when faced with the true Olam of God. Olam is the same word usually translated Ionian in Biblical Greek, although odd sometimes could be too. And this is, in fact, how the Jews translated this verse for the Greek version of the scriptures, the Septuagint. So this is a direct, comp- a direct example of Ionian, both in Greek and in its underlying Hebrew, meaning two similar but ultimately also very different things, not only in close proximity, not only in close topical proximity, but in actual, direct, immediate comparison. In this case, the context immediately clarifies the distinction. I argue that in the judgment of the sheep or the mature flock and the baby goats, the nearby context also clarifies a similar distinction. Both life and the colossus, or punishment, are from God, and both can go on for a long time, but the similarities end there. The Ionian life goes on forever by God's intention, but God intends an end to the Ionian colossus. So, such a different double usage of Ionian in immediate context may not happen often, but it does happen to various degrees, including at least once in the closest possible comparison of things described by the term Ionian. Of course, if we go with my preferred interpretation, where Ionian is used to describe things that come especially from God, yes, even God from God, as Romans 16.26 may thereby be rendered, which no one affirming very God of very God will dare deny the propriety of, then there is no problem at all. The life and the punishment are both equally and especially from God. But that usage is entirely neutral as to the question of whether the punishment, like God, is unending. It might or might not be. But then so much for using the term in itself as definite evidence that the punishment will be unending. And if the issue is pressed that this means Ionian life might or might not end, well, yes, that's true. Based on God's intention, our lives are always derivative of God anyway. I have less than no problem trusting that God will continue to give his life to those who continue in fellowship with him. Just just as I have less than no problem noting that unfallen angels also have Ionian life from God, including Lucifer and his allies, before they fell. So Ionian life is not in itself a guarantee of its own continuation, which maybe Lucifer was counting on, but rather God gives Ionian life or withdraws it according to his love and justice. He grafts branches into the vine and breaks branches off, and those he grafts in may be cut out, and those born by God's natural decree to the vine may be broken off. But those broken off by God may easily be grafted back in by God when, if ever, God so deems it proper to do so. One minute. That's it. Oh, (laughs) okay. perfect. 14 minutes. Yeah, you. uh, good job. 
Okay, so that concludes part one of the debate containing opening statements and rebuttals. Tune in to the next episode, episode 60, for part two with its cross-examination, which is my personal favorite part of any debate. Until then...